This is the Apex United Methodist Church podcast. So in the last 20 years, the amount of Americans who report feelings of loneliness has more than doubled. Um, It has gone from 20% to 46%. So 46% of Americans today report feeling lonely some of the time or most of the time. So statistically speaking, about half of us um, are living a life that feels very lonely. And the truth is, whether we fit into that 46% or not, all of us know what it feels like to be lonely. We've all been through middle school. And um, whether it's all the way back to when we were 12 or yesterday, we all have had that feeling of isolation and disconnection. And it's important as we begin um, thinking about loneliness to distinguish between aloneness and loneliness. Aloneness is healthy. In fact, it's often described as a spiritual discipline of solitude and quiet, of a chance to be away with just us and God alone in solitude. That is a healthy and good thing in its appropriate doses. Loneliness is a very different thing. It's when we don't have a connection with others in which we can share the joys and burdens of life. Loneliness is when we feel disconnected and isolated. Even if we are surrounded by people, it's when we feel disconnected and isolated. And I can remember a time in my not-so-distant past where I would have reported feeling lonely most or some of the time, and it was in my first few years of ministry. My husband and I were living in Durham at the time. We were serving our first appointments, Um, We had gone to seminary in Durham and had made a great community of friends. And after we graduated, our friends either got connected in jobs or they moved elsewhere. And so suddenly this support system that we had began to shift and change. But our life was still in Durham. And so as we got involved in our two different churches and as we had our first child, we started to feel more and more lonely. We were plenty to do. We had two churches and a young child, and we were surrounded by people because we had two churches and a young child, but we were still missing that community of friends that we had grown to count on. We knew the feeling of loneliness very personally. Now, some experts these days are calling this rise in loneliness an epidemic because it has... um, It's pervasive, and it's painful, and it's damaging to our health and our well-being. And so it's a real thing that many of us are suffering through even today. And so my question for us to ponder as as we study the scripture today is to wonder what our faith teaches us about loneliness and about its cure. So I'd like to start by answering this question Um, by reading from Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. And if you'd like to follow along, you can find it on page 193 in your Bible. Paul writes these words to the church in Ephesus. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, 
just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. God. So we're in a sermon series called Why Christian, and we're asking what is it about our faith that is such good news? In an age where skepticism is ramping up and people are leaving the church everywhere we look, why is our faith such good news? Why can we proclaim Jesus with such confidence? And so this series is drawing a lot of wisdom from a book written by Richard Rohr, who's a um, Franciscan monk, teacher, author, scholar, mystic in a lot of ways. And his book is called The Universal Christ. And in this book, Richard Rohr tries to expand our imagination for how, God, how big God is and how far God's love reaches. And in particular, Rohr wants us to really ponder the incarnation of saying that we can learn a lot from God by studying his incarnation. Now, incarnation is one of those fancy theological words. Um, it comes from Latin, incarnate, comes from incarne, which in Latin means into flesh. And so when we talk about God being incarnate, we're talking about God becoming flesh, <laughs> being born in the person of Jesus. And because God chose to come to us in the person of Jesus, because God chose to reveal himself to us through the work of Jesus, who was God made flesh, this changes how we interact with God, how we interact with the world, how we interact with each other. Here's what Rohr says in his book, The Universal Christ. Most of us, understandably start the journey of faith assuming that God is up there and our job is to transcend the world to find him we spend so much time time to get up there we miss that God's big leap in Jesus was to come down here so much of our worship and religious effort is the spiritual equivalent of trying to go up what has become the down escalator so for the past 500 years or so, Christianity has um, presented, in, in a lot of cases, a dualistic understanding of spirituality. The world is bad, heaven is good, God is in heaven, and we are stuck here in the bad world. And so the whole goal of our faith is to get our soul from this bad world into heaven with God. But Christian history... The 1,500 years before that dualistic understanding was presented in the church, Christian history has told us that um, that's not how we've always presented our faith, that Christians have not always viewed things so dualistically, that God hasn't always been seen as up there while we are down here trying to get up there. Instead, a lot of our Christian history as has really embraced the incarnation and understood God through the light of the incarnation. And what I mean is they knew that because God chose to come to us in Jesus, because God chose to enter into our world as a human, that God was teaching us in no uncertain terms 
that there is nowhere we can go down here where we can get away from God. That even in our world that is very broken in a lot of ways, even here there is nowhere we can go that God is not. Psalm 139 explains it this way. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You see, we see this um, woven all through scripture, this idea that God is everywhere. In Romans chapter 8, Paul famously writes, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you see, God isn't just up there in heaven. God is also down here with us. God is everywhere. We can find and meet Jesus everywhere we go, which is why Roar writes in this book, the proof that you are a Christian is that you can see Christ everywhere else. So you see, God chose to become like us in order to be connected with us. Christ became incarnate in Jesus so that he could be in relationship with us at all times, in all places, without limitation, without exception. Which means that we humans were created for connection. We were created for connection with God, and we were created for connection with each other. In the Ephesians passage, which I read a few moments ago, Paul talks about our calling as Christians in a very unique way. In verses 1 through 3, I'm going to read them again to you. He says this, Lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Lead a life worthy of your calling, Paul says, and your calling is one, to bear with one another in love, and two, to maintain unity in peace. To bear with one another in love and to maintain unity with peace. Um, one of the words that um, we Christians have learned from Scripture that we like to um, remind ourselves of is that we are called to koinonia. This is a Greek word that describes the church, that describes the um, unique kind of community that God has given us. Koinonia is loosely translated as fellowship, but it's more than a potluck supper or um, talking with folks in between services. Koinonia is so much deeper than that. It describes community in the truest sense of the word. Koinonia is a Christ-centered community, and it's an interactive relationship between God and believers who are sharing new life in Christ. So koinonia is this interactive relationship between God and all of us who are sharing new life in Christ. I believe that our lonely world needs connection. Real, authentic 
true connection. And I believe we, the church, need to remember that we have been given a vehicle for this connection by God. That God wants us to live in koinonia with each other. That God, who is everywhere, who wants to connect with us, wants us to connect with each other in real, authentic relationship. And so God gave us the gift of koinonia. And Paul describes kind of what koinonia looks like in Ephesians chapter 4 as he gives instructions to his people about how they can live together. And first, Paul wants his people to pursue spiritual friendship. He wants them to pursue spiritual friendship. He tells them to approach one another with humility, with gentleness, with patience, to bear with one another in love. So he's not telling them to go make a bunch of acquaintances at church so you have someone to talk to after the service. Paul is telling, to, telling them to engage in real relationships with one another, to be humble and gentle with each other, to be patient in our disagreements with each other, to bear with one another and to bear each other up in love. Paul is telling his people to pursue friendships that have depth that matter. And what's important for us to grasp is that these kind of relationships, these spiritual friendships, don't happen automatically and they don't happen overnight. They happen through small groups and classes when the church gathers together. When a Sunday school class meets for week after week sharing real conversations about their faith and their life, that's when koinonia develops. That's how spiritual friendship comes about. When we join a men's group or a women's group or a parents group and we talk about those things that are really mattering in our lives, going deeper than surface level, that's when we begin to experience koinonia. We um, handed out our ministry directory last week in worship and there are copies at the Welcome Center for you to pick up, but in this ministry directory, there are so many different kinds of groups, um, classes, where you can be involved with one another, where you can get to know people who share your faith, where you can go deep and have authentic relationships that matter to your life. And I know it can be scary and intimidating to join a group where you have to talk about life. I get that. But here's what I've learned. Spiritual friendships are impossible without vulnerability. You can't have koinonia unless you are willing to be vulnerable. Unless you are willing to open up and share about your life and your struggles and your faith and to receive others sharing the same as well. Just as God shared his love and his life with us by becoming vulnerable as a newborn baby... So God calls us to be vulnerable with one another as we make spiritual friendships and open up and share from the heart. And when we do this, when we connect with one another through spiritual friendships by being open and vulnerable with each other in a safe place, something really amazing happens. We create God-inspired unity. And this is the second quality of koinonia that Paul talks about in this passage from Ephesians. 
Paul urges his people to maintain unity in peace. He tells his people to make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Why? Why is unity so important? Well, for one, it's the one thing Jesus prayed for us. In John 17 that we read earlier, Jesus was praying for all of his followers who would come, and he prayed that we would be one as the Father and him are one. This is Jesus' prayer for you and me that we would know unity. So unity is core to who we are in Christ. So Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 4. He said, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. We were made for unity just as we were made for connection. Now, unity doesn't mean uniformity. This doesn't mean we have to agree with each other about all things at all times. It doesn't mean we have to be uniform in our theology or in any other category you can think of. But it does mean that we have to make an effort to maintain peace when it comes to those things that could divide us. So that where we can disagree and still love each other. So that we can be at odds and still be united in Christ. Personally, I think one of the contributors to loneliness in our world today is the divisiveness that we see everywhere. We are living in a tribalistic time. And we are so disunified that we have trouble knowing to whom we belong. We have trouble knowing where it is safe to belong, where we can find people who will love us no matter what. We are disconnected, I believe, in part because we are so divided. And God calls us Christians to a higher standard. God calls us to connect with one another across all of the lines that divide us, from political to racial to theological, denominational. God calls us to be one as God is one. This is the call of koinonia, of real, authentic, Christ-centered community. Now, the thing about koinonia is that it asks a lot of us. It's hard. It's hard work to have spiritual friendship. It's hard work to maintain unity, especially in a divided world. But the truth is, koinonia gives us back so much more than it asks from us. Because it gives us a place to belong. It gives us a family of, of faith where we know we will be loved forever no matter what. It gives us a people who will care for those vulnerable parts of our souls and our lives. And because of that, koinonia is the antidote to the epidemic of loneliness. Kevin and I gleaned some wisdom from our period when we were suffering with loneliness. And it, our wisdom came when we, when we realized that we were partly responsible for our own feelings of loneliness. 
You see, we had just expected community to show up organically wherever we went. We expected koinonia to fall on our doorstep because we had taken it for granted before. But what we learned in this season of life was that we had to work for it. We expected churches to automatically provide us with community because that's what church is supposed to do. But what we learned is that koinonia is not something you have. It's something that you are. It's a mindset. It's a way of life. It's not the responsibility of a program or a ministry to provide it for us. It's something that we have to find within ourselves because it requires us to make time and space for friendship. It requires us to have the courage to be vulnerable and open to do the hard work of unity. Koinonia is not something that we can automatically have. It's something that we have to pursue. So I'd like to close with um, some, some words for the two different groups that are here. And I know there's a, a spectrum of folks who might be feeling loneliness in different ways and shapes and forms today. But to those who know the gift of koinonia, to those of you who are not in the 46% of people who report feeling lonely on a regular basis, what I wanna say to you is this. Someone sitting near you is feeling desperately lonely. Maybe they're grieving, Maybe they've moved here and they've left all the people they know and love. Maybe they are in a room full of people and they feel isolated and disconnected. But someone near you today, statistically speaking, is feeling lonely and they want what you have. And as the people of God, we must remember that just as God gave us the gift of koinonia, God wants to give everyone the gift of koinonia. So people of God, don't get so caught up in the beauty of your community that you neglect those who feel isolated. Don't neglect those who don't have the luxury of the community that you have. Lead a life worthy of the calling that you have been called into. Invite others to know the joy and the blessing of true, authentic friendship. And to those of you who are feeling lonely these days, to those of you who know exactly what it feels like to be disconnected or isolated, what I want to say is that you are not alone in your loneliness. You are not alone in your loneliness, but only you can change it. Koinonia is not something that will happen to you. It is something you have to participate in. It's something that you have to seek out, which means you might have to make yourself vulnerable. You will have to make yourself vulnerable and open yourself up in a safe place to others around you who are seeking that kind of connection as well. So it will be uncomfortable. It won't come overnight. But the good news is that when you seek out koinonia, when you open your hearts to other believers with the intention of inviting God to build a community around you, God takes our efforts and he makes them into something more beautiful than we can ever imagine. Your life and your faith will undoubtedly be enriched when you seek out a connection with others.
there's an old Swedish proverb that I'd like to end on that says this. Shared joy is double joy. Shared sorrow is half a sorrow. May you know the gift of shared joy and the support of shared sorrow. Thanks be to God. Amen.